Hey, Rob here, and this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast is sponsored by Audible. Of course, this year we're journeying through the wizarding world of Harry Potter, and one of the very best ways to experience the book series is through the incredible audiobooks performed by Jim Dale. Audible has the entire series and so much more just waiting for you. To check out thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, and other spoken word entertainment, start your free 30-day trial today over at audibletrial.com slash crooked table. That's audibletrial.com slash crooked table. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On the show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be doing the third installment of our, I guess, most most of the year long uh, delving into the Harry Potter series. This week, we're going to be talking about the uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third entry. And I am honored to welcome back to the show, Jackson Smith. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, so I feel like every time we have you on, because last time it was for the third installment of a <laughs> fan favorite uh, fantasy uh, series in one of one of these things. So eventually we have to get you back on here to talk about a movie of your choice that's not linked to something that we're, you know, a lot of, like an ongoing uh, series. But, but you something uh, that's not a third movie too. So. At least, yeah, at least that. Yeah. Um, so tell people who haven't, you know, who haven't heard you previous episodes that you've been on who you are, what you have going on. And I hear you have a project going on that involves the Dark Knight himself. I do, yes. Uh, I am under payroll for Warner Brothers currently. So Very exciting. <laughs> uh, so I can't say anything bad about them in this podcast. No, but uh, no, yeah, I, I, am a, I am a filmmaker and podcaster. Uh, my roommate, Adam Barnard, and I uh, have our own podcast called The Home Experience Podcast, where we review movies that are out on the home market or movies that we love that you can watch from the comfort of your own home. Uh, we host these up on our Screen Fever channel, where I also post short films, video essays, other discussions we have about certain things industry related. Uh, and yeah, when I'm not doing that, I am uh, writing and directing. And currently, yeah, we are, uh, I'm working with a friend of mine, uh, Rachel Hemsley, and we are doing a web, a few different web series for the DC Kids channel, um, all focused on Batman. So uh, the one we're currently on right now is called Building with Batman. And it's like a, it's like a DIY series, but, uh, but all Batman themed and with a, with a little Batman action figure narrating it. So obviously not high art, but it's been, it's been a ton of fun. And honestly, the, the seeing the reception to it over the last several weeks has been really, really cool. So. Well, that's, that seems really awesome. I mean, plus, I mean, you know, you're working with these like iconic characters that everyone knows. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, getting the yeah. chance to work with Batman in any capacity is, is kind of a, a gift unto itself. It is. It's fascinating. It's like, uh, I know this is not Harry Potter related, but, but, but it's interesting because, you know, you're making a, you're making a television or well, not television, a web show for kids right. and geared towards kids. But, but, you know, the more you delve into Batman mythology and Batman's history and comic books, there's a lot about it. That's not kid friendly. <laughs> so, right. Oh yeah. So honestly, yeah, the biggest challenge of writing has just been like, like finding a way to like, okay, we're doing a Joker episode. How do we, 
how do we do that without <laughs> without getting <laughs> no, into no, the no killing joke references? First, of yeah, all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we can't we can't talk about that. We you know if we say fell into a vat of chemicals, we have to like word it in such a way to where it doesn't sound too nasty. So it's like it's yeah. But but honestly, I I I've loved the challenge it's presented. It's uh, and and they and like I said, it's just been a lot of fun. And I I think a lot of the episodes we've done, I'm really proud of. And they've I I at the very least, I hope it will be a, a gateway drug for kids to to get actually really get into the comics and really really get into the to the nitty-gritty of Batman mythology because it's really cool. You know, I did, I had to do a lot of research and and I found out a lot of really awesome stuff. Um I might be watching the Dark Knight trilogy actually next with my roommates so nice. <laughs> as a result of it. Uh is there are there any particular incarnations of the character that you're sort of look, looking into as far as uh inspiration for the kind of tone like whether it's the Adam West series or oh the, like yeah. lighter comics Brave and the Bold animated show perhaps things like that Brave and the Bold yeah Brave and the Bold is my favorite cuz yeah cuz that 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 show was definitely i think the most the most kid friendly mm-hmm. uh, out of all the animated bat not not to ding Batman the animated series because of course that's you know the holy grail but right. but I really love Brave and the Bold and I even as a as an adult I find the humor in that show to be so so on point and so uh, like like it, it it feels like a great blend of sort of like comics Batman but also Adam West Batman right. um so so we've been using yeah we've been using a lot of Brave and the Bold stuff for for this show and I've been watching a lot of that and it's really good nice yeah I think to your point it's it's interesting as being a fan of all these long, long running franchises that tend to take different incarnations. You know, we talked about Star Wars last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you're working with Batman and now Harry Potter. We're going to talk to talk about how there's variations like, you know, I have a three year old here. So obviously I'm not going to show her Revenge of the Sith, which we talked about, or even <laughs> Batman, the animated series. But, you know, I introducing her to like the Star Wars. Um, what is it? Forces of Destiny web series or, oh, yeah, 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 or yeah. like, you know, something like the Brave and the Bold or, or you know, even what you're, you know, the shows you've been working on. I'm going to have to go and check that out and show her some of those. So I, I think it's. It's, uh, you know, for us fans of these kinds of things, it's really key to hone in on like, well, what is what is the gateway drug? If I have a three year old and I want her to be into Star Wars and Batman, what are uh, are some good places to start with that? So I think in that way, you're doing you're doing the brand a real service by working with DC kids because you're helping grownups, fans, parents like like myself find a way to have that character and that mythology accessible to the children rather than be like, Hey, come here. Let's, let's put on the dark night. <laughs> yeah. Worry about well, let's it. put on, let's put on Joker. Yeah. Yeah. God. Well, it's actually, you, you make a good point. And I think that's why it's, I think that that's why I'm, I'm so excited to talk about Harry Potter today because, um, I, I just went back and rewatched all the movies, um, in, in, in honor of this discussion. And, and what I think is so cool about Harry Potter as a, as a franchise or as a, as a thing that exists, is you know when it comes to getting kids into it you literally just start with the first movie mm-hmm. like what like what's so cool about that series is that you know you you start right at the beginning and the first movie is it's a kids movie it's like totally a kids movie and then like as you keep watching it you know and as the characters grow up it then sort of evolves into something a lot darker and more mature you know with a lot more complicated themes and a lot more social commentary you know it's like um 
so it's just really, it's just, it's, it's just a really cool thing. Um, and if I had kids, I, I would be so like, honestly, like showing them the first Harry Potter movie would just be like top of the top of the list for me, because it's like, not only are you probably going to love this thing, but the more you delve into this thing, you know, the more interesting it's going to get. And, you know, as you get older, you're going to be able to understand it more. And I think, I just think that's so cool as a, as a thing that exists. And you don't usually see that sort of steady evolution in a franchise from beginning to end. I mean, this came out in the first one came out in 2001. My brother, who's eight years younger than me was 10. So he was almost exactly the age of the characters as they were coming out in real time, because the movies came out about a year, a year and a half apart. They're set each, you know, each one is chronicling a different year. So it's like you're growing up with these actors and these characters in the real time progression as Harry is sort of moving forward on his journey and all that stuff. And I think that's, I feel like that kind of, uh, you know, one-to-one comparison between characters, actors and fans has never really been done like that before. I mean, even something like Star Wars was, all over the place. I mean, where they jump yeah. back in time and forward and all that. Like there was no steady progression. The closest we have is Force Awakens being set 30 years after Return of the Jedi and actually coming out around 30 years after Return of the Jedi, but not sure, throughout the yeah. franchise like that. It's unprecedented. Honestly, I weirdly, I think the closest point of reference I can think of is Boyhood. Um, yeah. But that, that wasn't something you watched along and along. It was just one movie where you sat and watched a kid grow up. Whereas like Harry Potter was... You know, you were watching these kids grow up, but you were doing it with them. You know, I mean, like I was I was six when the first one came out. I, I was born in 95. So I was I was six in 2001. Uh, so I wasn't quite the age of Harry in, mm-hmm. the, in that movie. But by the time the last one came out, I was about to graduate high school. So I was so I was the age. Yeah, he yeah. was supposed to be canonically. So uh, so I definitely grew up with those movies and um yeah, it's like, you know, revisiting them as an adult, I can see just how much of an impact that that franchise had just not just on my sensibilities as a creative and a filmmaker, but me as a human being like it's, you know, the the lessons that that story teaches and the the themes it delves into are, I think, really essential for kids um, and really, really at the core of good coming of age stories. And it is kind of the ultimate coming of age story. So. Yeah, it reminds me, you mentioned Boyhood. It just struck me that, you know, my wife and I had only, we'd recently been together for nine years, and on our anniversary, we were watching the before movies, like two of the before movies, Ah, before Sunrise and Sunset, and it's kind of like that, because that is, that similarly has the real-time gaps of uh, storytelling Mm -hmm. and actors and everything like that, so I think that's probably, but there's no magic in that, so we're not talking about that. No magic. (laughs) Not yet. There's Not yet. I will definitely cover that somewhere. I love those movies. (laughs) Yeah, Richard Linklater, man, genius. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I feel like I wanted. To, I feel like I'm ready to jump into the movie itself because I was going to ask about your yeah. thoughts of the franchise, but I feel like we kind of briefly touched <laughs> on them. Uh, so I, I think let's just transition into this because I want to find out where Prisoner of Azkaban lands for you within the the uh, the franchise itself. So mm-hmm. here's a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? Harry Potter. There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor, one of the guards of Azkaban, searching the train for Sirius Black. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. 
hope he finds me. Because when he does, I'm going to be ready. You must look beyond. That was a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, released in 2004. So, Jackson, is this your favorite and or the objectively best Harry Potter movie in the franchise? It is the Empire Strikes Back of Harry Potter movies. I think, like, this is... I It is it is 100% my favorite, like, by a pretty wide margin. Um, and it is also, I think... I think it is probably the best in the whole franchise and it's widely regarded as the best in the franchise by most people uh, who, who know a lot about filmmaking. Um, and I think that comes down to the director. I think, you know, they, you know, they got a lot of really cool directors to do Harry Potter. Um, Chris Columbus is re- I, I have a soft spot for Chris Columbus. I think he's really good. Uh, David Yates is I think really talented, but like Alfonso Cuaron is, is kind of like a once in once in a generation genius. Like like every every movie he does feels so so well crafted and so expertly engineered. Like he uses every single cinematic tool to help tell the story in a way that very few other filmmakers do. So to see him get to leave his mark on such a popular franchise was it was, it's just, it's such a blessing. Like I I can't even think of another instance of probably last Jedi. Honestly, I think like that's another, I think that's another example of a, a time where a, where a, a genius director was allowed to make a genius movie. Um, but, but yeah, no, this is, this is definitely hands down my favorite and, and probably one of my favorite movies of all time. I think, I think, I think it's definitely up there. Wow. Yeah. Cause when I, when I put out that I was doing the Harry Potter movies this year, you were like the first one to be like, Oh, prisoner of Azkaban. I'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And I mean, I, I do really like the first two movies. I talked about them already on, mm-hmm. on the show, but I, it, it is some, there is a certain lack of, I don't know what it is. Maybe our art, artistic style that those two movies have, like they're good. They're, they're fun. They're solid. They set up the world. They create everything. Chris Columbus is obviously instrumental in everything that happens after that. But this, this to me kind of feels like the first movie in the Harry Potter franchise where the art, side of it is kind of undeniable like it's not mm-hmm. you know the other two you can you can watch and, and obsess over or you can watch and be like eh, i don't know if these are for me but this one even if you're like not into the franchise you're like okay this is really well made though like look at the effects yeah. look at the art direction and the, the music which we'll get into as you mentioned so it's it's like i feel like this is where it starts to elevate uh the, the franchise starts to elevate to another level and it's also, I talked about on the last one, about how Chamber of Secrets is really sort of the end of an era as far as that type of storytelling. This is where we lean even further into the dark. And this is really mm-hmm. the last one, I would say, that's air quotes kid-friendly, as in no children die in this movie. There's no traumatic <laughs> deaths in this film like there are in mm-hmm. the rest of them. Yeah. It's also, I, I, it's it's the first of the Harry Potter stories that is not not too explicitly fantasy. Like I think, I think the like, like Philosopher's Stone or Philosopher's Stone. Wow. Sorry. Sorcerer's Stone uh, and Chamber of Secrets are both like, okay, giant snake in the castle, giant evil snake in the castle. Whereas like the, the plot of Prisoner of Azkaban is 
you know, serial killer escapes from <laughs> wizard jail. Like, I mean, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. kind of high con high concept, but the stakes are so much more personal and and so much more real. Like, I think this is the movie where where the franchise really started to delve into, you know, actual actual issues, um, like like things that reflect problems in the real world, as opposed to using sort of big big fantasy elements as stand-ins for that, which is kind of what the Chris Columbus movies are. Right. Well, yeah, with the last one, they had the whole thing with mudbloods, and, like, that was the huge, mm -hmm. yeah, like, that whole uh, magical uh, white nationalism, I guess. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and I think that not only yeah, that, and then also the fact that this is the first one where they venture off the school grounds throughout the story, um, the first yeah. one where they're featured in clothes other than their Hogwarts robes. <laughs> and it's the first one that's coming from who, you know, Quaron, obviously now is, you know, Oscar winning filmmaker, Roma and Gravity, mm -hmm. all that Children of Men, which came after this. But at this point, he was basically best known for Ichumama Tambien. So coming from, yes. I think well, the, the creative team behind the franchise knew that the, they needed something, they needed to kick it up a notch to, to um, yeah. inject some fresh blood. Otherwise, I feel like this stories could have gotten kind of stagnant if we had the Chris Columbus uh, mm -hmm. sort of strict template to the to the books, too. That's the other thing, too, because I feel like this movie benefits a great deal from not feeling so episodic where, oh, this five-minute chunk is chapter one. This yeah. five-minute chunk is chapter two. Do you, do you agree about that as well? I think uh, here's what I have to say about that, you know, uh, uh, especially like going, going back and watching the first two movies. I think the first two movies, you are you know, whether as a, as a kid or as a, just a general audience member, you're getting accustomed to the world. So like every right. single scene or every single chapter in those first two stories is like, Oh, here's a new element. You're like, Oh, oh yeah. you know, we can do this with magic. You know, this is something that's possible. There is a wizard bank, you know, this and that, uh, by the time you've gotten to the third one in the story, like you, kind of know how everything works. Like you have a general sense of like, okay, you know, this is how magic works. This is how the, the magical world works. This is how Hogwarts works. So what's great about that is it sort of frees you up to tell a story. That's a lot more internal. I think, I think like the first two movies, like the, all the conflict is very external. Like again, like giant snake, magical stone, Voldemort, yada, yada, yada. Whereas like this movie. And I think the story is a lot more about, you know, what's going on inside Harry's head and sort of how he's developing and growing up and, and, and responding emotionally to the events happening around him. So, so yeah, I think it was really smart to get a filmmaker like Koran because he, he had done before this, he did, uh, uh, the little princess, which is a really, really incredible, incredible kids movie from the nineties. Um, uh, which is obvious, which could be seen as sort of like an audition for mm -hmm. Harry Potter. Oh, very much um, so. But he had also done Itumama Tambien, which is a, uh, a Mexican sex comedy. So, <laughs> and which is, I think, the the reason J.K. Rowling hired him. I think she wanted somebody who, somebody who could do sort of like this this whimsical fantasy, but like bring an element of like rawness of, or like of, yeah. of rawness. Yeah, exactly. Of of you know, a, a real youthful energy to it, which, uh, which, which feels unique to the point in Harry's life that he's at when the movie starts. Yeah. I think, you know, speaking it to the larger franchise, I feel like this is kind of the last moment, you know, you mentioned how the first two set up the world. I feel like this is kind mm -hmm. of the, their only time to really like take a moment and breathe because after the next movie, it's just all Voldemort's return. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And so this mm -hmm. is, this is yeah. kind of like in a way the, 
in a way, kind of the Harry Potter character study movie that's in the middle <laughs> of the franchise where it's like, yep. all right, this is what happened with him. This is how he's processing it. And now he's now he's kind of really being, being challenged as far as Voldemort's returns. Yeah. He has to train an army. He has to face him, blah, 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 the prophecy and all that other stuff that's coming up. I feel yeah. like this is this is the only one in which Voldemort doesn't is does not appear in any form. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. I think that that's kind of telling that it works so well because it is it does kind of function as a standalone in a way. And it also bridges that gap between, as you said, sort of the you know boilerplate. This is what Harry this is how magic works. And oh, it's Harry and Voldemort to the finish, to the death. It's it's kind of mm-hmm. the last little bit of lead up into uh, into that kind of the, the grander story that's that's to be told exactly yeah yeah no it's it's the movie it's the movie where i think harry gets to be a complex character for the first time uh like he he, he's a he's a great character in the first two movies but he does kind of exist as the audience pov like he is kind of seeing this all (laughs) for the first time so we're kind of growing and learning along with him whereas like this movie is like Harry's depressed, you know, like he's, he's depressed. He's dealing with depression. He's dealing with anxiety. He's like sort of struggling to find his place in the world. And it's like, this is the movie I think where it's definitely the first movie where Daniel Radcliffe gets to really show his acting chops, but it's like, it's the first movie where you really, you really fall for him as a character. And I think you need that going into the rest of the story because yeah, (laughs) Goblet of Fire, things start getting nuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the big turning point concludes with a, a teenage death. (laughs) <laughs> still the most intense scene in a movie. Yeah. In a oh God. Movie I've ever well, seen. I mean, yeah, it's still when I, you know, when I first saw that, that, I and mean, now we're not talking about this movie anymore, but when yeah. I first <laughs> saw that, that was, it was very intense, but as I've grown up and now I haven't even watched it, I haven't seen these movies since I've become a father. So now to watch that thing at the end with, uh, Cedric's dad kind of running over to him and that I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to cry more than normal. Um, yeah, it's but, intense. I, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so I feel like we are kind of a good starting point here. If we're going to break this down element mm-hmm. by element is Harry himself. It's kind of where this finds him Radcliffe's performance. I mean, we've sort of touched on it already, but just from the very beginning, I think you already sort of get the sense of, Oh shit. It's real. They just became teenagers. Hormones are flying and there's rebellious energy in the air. You know, we open up with the Lumos Maxima under the sheets, which could be read as whatever you want to do, that whatever you think, whatever metaphor you want for rebellion, whether he's like exploring whatever, experimenting with whatever, Mm -hmm. or, you know, he's found his Uncle Vernon's dirty magazines or whatever you want to talk about. (laughs) You know, I feel like it's it is sort of the taking that uh, that metaphorical, you know, the allegory of the first two and sort of building on it and applying it to the world that the, the previous two movies have created. Yeah, I, 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 I really love that first scene, I think, because it yeah. sort of has a, it, it has a more, um, yeah, it has more taboo quality to it than yeah. I think the, the intros to the previous movies have. Like, like he's, he's doing something in secret in his room and it, it feels so, it's like, it feels so intimate. You yeah. Know? It's like almost like ma- like secretly, I mean, I'm just going to say it. It's like secretly like magical masturbation kind of. It <laughs> seems like the metaphor because he's around that age. He's under the sheets. He's hiding when the door is open. And I think, yeah. you know, keeping that in a kid-friendly context, but also you're getting the, the, the uh, understanding that he's, he's trying to find his own path. He's rebelling against mm-hmm. his uh, uncle and his aunt's authority in a way that he didn't even before. I mean, the whole, we should probably just talk about the whole Aunt Marge thing, which is really indicative of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. just the way that we finally see that angry side of Harry really come to the forefront. 
it's the first time too that like you see him use magic you see him explicitly and intentionally use magic outside of school like that like they sort of plant that and they say like oh okay you know you're not supposed to use magic outside of school obviously you know it's okay if you if you dropped your your cousin in a in a in a snake tank in the first one because you didn't know you were a wizard yet but like at this point like harry knows you know doing the lumo spell under his sheets or blowing his aunt up like that's something that could get him kicked out of hogwarts but he's so angry and he's so angsty and he's so sad that he like he just he can't stop himself and 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 i think that was that was something that i didn't really like register with me when i watched it when i was a kid that like harry was playing with fire but like it i think it just really goes to show just at, at, at what stage he's in mentally when this movie starts and it's also the beginning of that that dichotomy between him and Voldemort. I mean, yes, you get the parcel tongue in the last one, but where we go further on in the story where he starts to wonder, am I going to go bad like he did? Yeah. You know, I'm just, and he says in order of the Phoenix, I'm so angry all the time. And here you're seeing Mm -hmm. that films earlier already being kind of set up and like how, how he's dealing like basically with post-traumatic stress disorder from this situation, the tragedy with his parents and, and how, you know, the, the, the life that he's led being forced under the stairs <laughs> and yeah. on privet drive and living it under a constant abuse. I mean, it's like, yeah. I, it's a kind of a magic, a miracle that he didn't turn out to be a bad wizard after everything he's been through. Exactly. I think, I think, that's probably my favorite or one of my favorite elements of the series as a whole is the, is the idea that deep down, I think Harry and Voldemort are kind of the same person in mm-hmm. different circumstances. Like, like they, they, they share a very, they share very similar passions. They share very similar anxieties. They're both incredibly smart and cunning. The The difference though, is that I think people had, Harry had people, people come into his life who showed him a lot of love and Voldemort just has absolutely zero concept of love that isn't somehow tied to fear. So it's like, because of that one difference, you, you have these two characters who just went off in completely opposite trajectories, even though they're extremely, extremely similar deep down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get the whole, you get the imagery in the beginning with <laughs> Aunt Marge kind of floating over, uh, floating over everyone. And, and I, I actually didn't realize this at the time, but that's the, I'm trying to find the actress's name. That's the actress that played Miss Trunchbull in Matilda. Uh, <gasps> what? Yes. I don't know if I knew that. Oh I didn't God. know that until <laughs> recent, I actually, for some reason, never saw Matilda when it came out. So I didn't see it until a few years ago. And then when I was like, really? who is this person? Why does she look familiar? I was like, oh my God, she was Aunt Marge. That's craziness. Oh man. Um, so, the, you know, I think she's just got a, uh, a, a kind of a, a, an interest in, dark family films with disturbing imagery. I mean, we'll get to some of that later on. There's a lot of animal people in this. <laughs> the transformations yeah, are kind of freaky yeah. um, at times. But yeah, speaking to Harry's point, just, just um, yeah, the way his his arc goes throughout this film, I really I really enjoyed seeing that progression and seeing the, uh, the influence that people in his life, like you were saying, have on him. You see that later on, too, with the... When he puts on the the cloak and he goes to Hogsmeade and he has that whole mm-hmm. where he discovers that the basically the exposition scene when he discovers Sirius Black's connection to his parents and you get yeah. that that real kind of outburst with um, with Ron and Hermione where he's he's basically declares that he's going to kill Sirius Black. I think that's yeah. where you kind of really see that he's on the precipice of going to whatever the magical version of the dark side is. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, because it's like I think you know it goes back to what we were saying about sort of like making the making the stakes a little bit more grounded. Like like up till this point in the franchise, like like you know we've just seen Voldemort as sort of a this is the reason your parents are dead. Right. He's this he's so powerful that he's not even a real person. He's just kind of like this, this external force, like a hurricane. So it's like, okay, well there's nothing really you can do about that other than, you know, uh, you know, just do your best whenever it comes up. But it's like now Harry has like a, a real tangible person who he believes is responsible for his parents' death, something that he, he some, someone who he can actually like encounter and actually like interact with. And it's like to see his reaction to that being like, I'm going to kill him just like speaks again. It just speaks to how it just speaks to how on edge he is. <laughs> um, and, and, and it also just makes it, I think it just, you know, I know we're jumping around the movie a lot, but I yeah. think it makes it so much more satisfying too. And he, he, he fi- a finds out that Sirius didn't kill his, didn't, wasn't responsible for his parents' death, uh, but finds out that Peter Pettigrew was. But when he he f- sees Peter Pettigrew for the first time, he's like not this. He's not this big, scary escaped convict. He's like this. He's a coward. He's like a shell of a human being. And I, think, <laughs> I, I think it's this cool. It's this really cool moment in the movie and in the book where where Harry realizes where that it's like it's like people people aren't evil. Evil is evil and people do evil things. And it's like, there's nothing good is going to come from nothing good is going to come from enacting revenge on this just pathetic mess of a human being. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a really cool development to see him, see him make, see him say at one point in the movie, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill the guy who sold out my parents. And then at the end of the movie say, no, we're, we're going to take him to Azkaban. We're going to do the right thing. You know, it's, it, it shows that it shows that even though Harry is an incredibly angsty and incredibly angry person, he is, he's somebody who, whose moral compass is driven by love and compassion. And that's what, that's what allows him to succeed. Yeah. And you get the, the literal and metaphorical rat that is Peter Pettigrew, um, <laughs> which, which <laughs> very that, clever. That is, you know, that was also one of the, one of the great, I think twists early, especially early on in this franchise that they had established scabbers as Ron's pet, like in the earlier stories in the books as well. And then sort of had that turn here where, Oh, it's, it's, this has been going on the whole time. And I think this movie really explores the, the outside edges of what happened to Harry. Like we learn more, much more about the context of mm-hmm. Voldemort's uh, turn, his attack on his parents. Cause he finds out the three other people whose names are on that map that they never tell anybody in the movie's uh, origin of, which is a whole other thing that I have issues with. But, um, yeah. you know, by, by learning by meeting Black and Lupin, especially, and, uh, and Pettigrew, I think it's, it really fills out his understanding of those events and helping ultimately leading to that epiphany that you mentioned. It is very realistic to, to I, I think that's very realistic to sort of how we how we process the world as we grow up, you know, like when like if you're to ask a question like, you know, you know, why, why do why do people die or why do people do bad things when you're 11 or 12? You're going to get an answer that's very like, oh, you know, well, you know, people some some people go bad or, you know, some things are very dangerous or this or that. But it's like as you get older and as you're able to sort of 
understand complex emotions and understand human behavior on a more intricate level, you sort of, the world gets bigger, you know, you understand like, okay, you know, this is how things work, you know, things are a lot more complicated. So I like, I like that, again, I, I love that the Harry Potter franchise is sort of, it, it is, it is growing up as it's about growing up. It's like you get to this point in Harry's development and now you're starting to, you're starting to see, oh, wow, this world is so much bigger. You know, this, this situation is so much more complex. You know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more going on here in the way that, you know, when you turn 13, you realize that there's a lot more going on in the world that you didn't know about. Yeah, it's the inside out thing of uh, at the end of that Pixar movie where Riley's board is way more complex and has way more buttons yeah, and switches exactly. on it. Which is like, oh, crap. I didn't realize I couldn't just be just be sad or happy. I could be, you know, like I, I could be both simultaneously sort of the uh, mm -hmm. in Sing Street. They mentioned this thing called Happy Sad, which I really love that movie, too. Um, oh, I love Sing Street. Great movie. Yeah, yeah. great movie. Um, but yeah, and then I think. You, you can sort of read the Patronus as, as kind of the metaphor for him just learning to manage his emotions. And, you know, the whole thing with Lupin, whose solution is always chocolate, by the way, so you got to love him for that. Um, <laughs> here, the chocolate will make you feel better. I agree. It would make me feel better. Right now in the pandemic, having chocolate would make me feel better. Um, Ooh, but, yes. <laughs> but Harry faints like four times trying to, you know, confront, confronted with his literally the ghost of his past, his mother's scream. And I think that that's a pretty clear metaphor for trying to come to terms with, uh, with you know, childhood trauma. And I think that's an interesting theme that the movie explores. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think deep down, it, I think deep down, like if, if you were to ask me, like, you know, like, what is this movie about? Like, I, I think it's about I think I really think it's about depression and how we and how we sort of. To, to, to fight through the sadness that's in invades us from the inside out. We sort of have to find the light that shines from the inside out. And, and, and the Patronus throughout the movie is used as such a, such a beautiful metaphor for that. Like I, I think probably like my favorite moment in this movie is, is that final, that final mm. scene where Harry casts the big Patronus that scares all the dementors away. Yeah. You know, cause the whole movie, you, you know, you, you're introduced to the Patronus as a thing, you know, okay, it's this thing that, you know, it expels Dementors, which suck the happiness out of you. Um, and then you find out to do it, you need to sort of find the, the happiest moment with your happy yourself. place, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You have to find your happy place. And it's like, Harry can't do that. He can't do that the whole movie because he like, he doesn't know where his happy place is anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, like there's this moment where he's in Lupin's office and Lupin's like, you know, what's your happiest memory? And he's like, Oh, you know, it's riding on a broom for the first time. And it's like, no, it's not. Cause if it were that the Patronus would have worked. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and, and I just love that. Like, he, you know, he gets to the end of the movie and he thinks that that the person who cast that Patronus is his dad. Like he thinks that it's like, oh, my dad came and saved me. But it's like only when he's able to like accept his parents death and process the fact that they're not coming back to save him and that he's going to be the only one to save himself is when he's able to sort of do that. And it, it's it's such a beautiful moment and such a such a powerful expression of his journey. So, so definitely credit to JK Rowling for that. But, but, but I think the way all Koran leads you through that in in the film is so, is so special and so unique. Yeah, absolutely. And then in, in keeping with Quaron sort of irreverent, like extra irreverent take on the, the franchise, you get that moment where they're flying on Buckbeak and he's like, he's like, Oh, I knew I could do it. Cause I'd already done it. <laughs> 
that whole thing. <laughs> Does that make sense? And everybody's like, no. Um, so you, you like, you get that big emotional payoff and then it's sort of like magic. Isn't this all weird? <laughs> magic. And first of all, we'll get, we'll get to this later, but magic plus werewolves plus time travel. It's like, shut up, take my money kind of thing. Um, we'll, we'll go, which we'll talk about towards the end of the conversation. We'll get into yeah. the whole time Turner sequence, which is kind of caps off all of this. Um, mm-hmm. so Let's see. Let's talk about, I guess we can kind of go, first I want to talk about the Grimm and how the, you know, we meet Emma Thompson's Trelawney in this. And she was apparently, I remember this around when the movie came out, those scenes, they, they almost wanted to cut them. Like Quaron wanted to not even really? include Trelawney from what I understand. And JK Rowling was the one that was like, no, no, you need those in there. They're important. They're going to pay off later on. And oh, obviously yeah, they do. She becomes important later on with the prophecy and everything. Right. So. Well, the prophecy and the whole uh, the the whole thing with uh, Harry and Voldemort, one of them must die, and then ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, we know where that goes with Harry. So I think that that's uh, that that's a really interesting addition, just kind of in the larger mythology of things, and the way that it's sort of misdirected with Sirius being an animagus, and that like him kind of being almost the manifestation of the Grim or misinterpreted as such early on. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a really cool thing to do. So. Um, Let's talk about any thoughts on that, I guess, first, before we move on to the night bus. I, I did not know that uh, Koran didn't want to keep those scenes in. That's, that's interesting. I, I, first of all, I think, I think um, it's Emma Thompson, right, who plays Trelawney? Yes. Yeah, she's incredible casting. Uh, <laughs> just genius. I, I, I love that the Harry Potter movies are just a way for all these phenomenal British actors to just come in and mess around. Well, I mean, when well, you get um, Alan Rickman and Timothy Spall and oh, Gary yeah. Oldman and uh, David Thewlis all in one scene at one point, you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is like Shakespeare <laughs> at Hogwarts, basically. It's amazing. It's so amazing. So I, I, I really love her in the movie. I, I, I love that. Uh, first of all, I love that you have a teacher that Hermione doesn't like. Mm-hmm. I think that's that like that. That was an element I picked up on this time that, that I thought was really fascinating because up till now, of course, Hermione is is an academic genius like she's just she just loves reading she loves studying she loves going to school so it's 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 really fascinating to have a dynamic where it's like like they all leave the divination class and of course you know up till this point everybody's like you know the audience is like oh okay you know they're crystal balls like they're wizards sure whatever and Hermione walks out of class she's just like it's a crock of bullshit (laughs) (laughs) like I just it's such a it's such a fun character moment because you know Hermione grew up in the muggle world so she 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 has an understanding of of muggles how muggles perceive magic that you know ron and other people don't necessarily so it's like you know she gets to a classroom with a bunch of crystal balls and somebody's like i'm going to read your tea leaves in your future and she's like you know (laughs) i've seen some crazy shit but i don't buy this (laughs) and it's just it's it's cool it's 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 a it's a fun little detail about her character and i uh, I really love it. Yeah, no, I, I, I would definitely keep those scenes in the movie. Yeah, you could see how uh, in the in the context of this story, how it almost wouldn't fit, but in the grand scheme of things, it it does. It's kind of important yeah. to set up everything else that comes later. But but yeah, yeah, I, also, I I think that it is a cool opportunity to sort of uh, Hermione, the character who's so thirsty for knowledge, she's taking multiple classes at the same time. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. It's also, it's, it's fascinating. I I think, I think the divination element is fascinating to this uh, as it pertains to this story, because it is all about, it's all about the, the story is all about time too. You know, it's about, you know, 
finding the, the the time to fix our mistakes while we still have the chance. And of course, you got the time turner where they like actually go back in time for the climax. So, uh, so adding the element of divination and seeing into the future is, is I, I think fits in really well with that because, because like when, when they're in the classroom for the first time and Trelawney says like, you know, Oh, I've seen something in your future and it's dangerous. You're like, okay, well if this is real, right? Like if this, if this whole crystal ball thing is real and she actually knows what she's talking about, you know, shit's going to go down. Like, <laughs> you know, that Harry's in actual trouble and it raises the stakes for the whole story. And, and yeah, I, I, I think it's really necessary. Yeah, I think, um, too, the, the other thing with Trelawney that I find kind of interesting is that, you know, you could almost have the Hermione response, be like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But then when she seems like she's channeling something, Trelawney, she seems almost unaware of it. She's like, oh, did you say yeah, something? Like, yeah. it's almost like she's like passing off as that she doesn't really, that she doesn't really have these abilities, but doesn't know that she actually does, if that even makes any sense. Uh, so I think that's, that's a really like fun kind of reversal. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's scary too. Like I, I remember when I saw that scene as a kid, it really scared me because, because like, you're like, oh, okay, she's the divination teacher. She sees into the future. This is just something she does. But then immediately after she sort of gives Harry that prophecy, she's like, did you say something? What just happened? And it's like, oh, wow, wait a minute. That was, that was real. That was, yeah, <laughs> this is real. Yeah, exactly. Um, again, it raises the stakes for the whole story. So really smart. Um, and to your point about the, how the story is all about time, you can get in this movie, the Whomping Willow obviously has a key role to play towards the end, but it's also, you get those shots to it sort of season by season, uh, oh, almost I like La La Land yeah. style. Like now we're in the fall now we're in the winter. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another way the the movie sort of, sort of makes that explicit that, hey, we're, we're tracking how time is progressing in, in real time of the story, but also, you know, jumping back and forth between the past, yeah. the future and all that stuff. I think it's, yeah, this is, it's a really thematically rich movie. I'm even appreciating even more as we're talking about it. Like, wow, like the, all of this is very well, like of a piece in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a way that Revenge of the Sith was more so than the previous two prequels, obviously. I feel like this one has a better understanding of the story that's telling than the previous two Harry Potters. Robert, if you haven't figured out yet, I am a theme <laughs> nut. I just, I, I love yeah. movies oh, that have, a, I love movies that have a lot to say and find really clever ways of saying them, which is, I think, why this is my favorite <laughs> out of all of them. Uh, like, I, I can't wait to talk about the last shot, but but that, we'll get to that at the end. But <laughs> but I, did, I I wanted to thank you for for bringing up the Whomping Willow bit, because that was, that was another thing I, I noticed on this last rewatch. You know, like in the, in the past Harry Potter movies, in the first two, you know, when, when it would change seasons you would you would just suddenly smash cut to a shot of the castle where with just like beautiful sheets of snow everywhere happy christmas uh, harry john happy christmas, williams Ron. christmas yeah. music coming in you know and i and i love that you know as a director alfonso Cuarón chose to use the whomping willow as a way to move you through this story right because it's not exactly what you would expect like you know up till now the whomping willow has just been that crazy tree from the second <laughs> right from the exactly. second movie um but but I love that you get like like anytime you want to understand the passage of time, you understand it through this object. It, it's it's just it 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 it. It, it makes the world feel so much bigger and makes the world feel so much so much more real 
it makes it feel like there's stuff going on outside of Harry's story. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, yeah, it's just a really smart way to, to, to express the passage of time through filmmaking. And I, uh, another thing that I just, I just didn't notice when I was a kid, I was like, I was like, Oh, you know, what's the difference between, between winter being just a, just a wide shot of a snowy castle and, or winter being, a tree just shrugging off all of its leaves at once. Like, right. <laughs> it's, and there, I think there's a, there's a lot more power in one of those. There's a lot more power, uh, in one of those images. Um, and that's the kind of image that a great director would come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I, it, those little touches I think are, are go a long way towards making the whole story feel cohesive as opposed to a mm-hmm. series of vignettes, I guess, in a way. Uh, exactly. Yes. I want to talk about the night bus, but I feel like it's also makes sense to sort of loop in a couple Lupin. No, that no, was not intentional. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of loop in a couple other things. So I think, so what I want to do is I want to talk about the night bus. Uh, and then with that John Williams music, because his piece mm, there especially yeah. stands out to me. Uh, and then the whole train sequence and the Dementors. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a oh. like one like nice built-in tangent from one to the next. So the night bus is the one of like several new additions, uh, magical landscape-wise that we get. We get the night bus. We get the Boggarts, which again, you know, Lupin fearing the moon. It's again kind of overcoming trauma and that kind of thing. It's it's sort of baked into the theme of what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, we get. Uh, the Dementors. So what are your thoughts on the night bus sequence, which apparently from my research tells me uses bullet time for some of that stuff, which again, yeah. time, I don't know if Quoron was <laughs> trying, he's like, we're going to use it to what, what technology uses time in the name. We're going to, well, that. there's that scene where they like, where they have to like squeeze yeah. in between the two. Double Why the long faces? So they, like, literally like <laughs> slow down time. Yes. Like I, I love the night bus. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things in Harry Potter. Um, I, I, I think too, because like, you know, when that shows up in the story, you know, what our understand, like our understanding of the magical world is like, oh, okay, like wizards and broomsticks and, you know, magical trees and this and that. It's all stuff that sort of feels very, it's stuff that feels very like high fantasy. So I, so I love that the first like exposure that you get to the wizarding world in this story is a double-decker bus. Like, you know, it's like, oh, like a like a bus that you would just see driving around London, except it's got three stories. There are, like, beds in it. The driver <laughs> is blind, and he's being a shrunken head by a little shrunken head. And it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's cool because, you know, like, up, like, the Wizarding World in the first two movies feels, it, it's, it's so escapist. Like it feels so fantasy. Like none of the, all of the clothes feel like they're out of a different time period. And, and you know, it's all set in this magical castle. So it's like, it's so cool that you kick, you kind of kick off the movie with this part of the magical world that feels ripped from reality in a way. Like it, it feels ripped and at the same time married to normal everyday objects in the way that we haven't necessarily seen in other, in other parts of the wizarding world. So it's like, it's, it's, it's just, it's so cool. I, it's just such a cool thing. And, and really in a way is, is a great signal of sort of what the West, what the rest of the, what the rest of the series is going to look and feel like, like it's going to look and feel like a blend of, weird fantasy things that you'd never seen before and stuff that you would see just driving around London. So I think it's the first time that you really see 
the wizarding world existing within our world. Like, like exactly. Yeah, like yeah. in the other ones, you're like, oh, you you run through the wall and then you're on. And you're the in the wizarding world. Yeah, yeah, nine and five or nine and three quarters. You tap the bricks the right way, and well, welcome to Diagon Alley. But this is like, no, no, yeah. it's a little bit of the wizarding world that just travels around. And Harry even questions that at one point. He's like, what about the Muggles? They won't they won't they see anything? He's like, no, the Muggles they don't see anything, do they? And they're like, <laughs> that whole they kind of shrugs it off. And um, yeah, this is the, the way it's it's a great sequence, and I think. It, it reminds me, to go back to Star Wars, uh, it's with the John Williams connection, so it's easy to do that. Mm. Uh, it reminds <laughs> me that his musical cue here reminds me a little bit of, of the, the Canto Bite song, uh, music from The Last Jedi. Yeah, and then all I of a sudden, that, like yeah. it's, it feels like you're in Harry Potter or in Star Wars, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, it like really jazzes itself up, and you're like, it becomes much more frenetic and, and sort of feels like you're entering a pocket of the world within that world that is completely different than anything else that you've seen up to that point. So to your point, to what you were saying. Yeah. So I, so great. I just want to say really quickly to, to sort of build on that, you know, pretty soon after you get one of my favorite little details in this whole movie, pretty soon after the night bus sequence, you get one of my favorite little details, which is your Harry goes into the leaky cauldron and you, you, you cut to, you open in on this shot of this wizard sitting mm -hmm. at a table, like stirring, like, was... like stirring his tea with some, ma like yep. some magic. And he's reading Stephen Hawking. <laughs> he's reading a brief <laughs> history of time. And it's, it's, Oh, it's just so cool because it's like, like yeah, up, to, yeah, up till now it's been like you go to the fantasy world, and when you get into the fantasy world, everything is fantasy. But but Quran was like, no, you know, the fantasy world is still set on Earth, and you still have echoes and elements of normal, average, everyday life that are sort of seeping into the cracks of this of this wizarding world, and it it yeah, it makes it feel so much more authentic, and makes it feel. So, oh, oh man, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it makes it feel like there's a world beyond the frame. It makes it feel like there's something, it makes it feel like you're, you're, you're watching snapshots of a, of a place that actually exists rather than something that's being just crafted for, right. for the camera in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. It makes me think of a criticism that I've heard for, and I mean, there's a lot of criticisms you could throw towards the uh, Aladdin remake from last year where never saw it. <laughs> it's whatever. It's kind of, yeah, it's I, fine I in elements, but then a mess in other ones, but it's kind of like, it feels like all the costuming and everything in that feels like you're watching a production of Aladdin. Like it doesn't feel like yeah. it's lived in, in any way, shape or form. It feels like the costumes were designed right off screen and then hand it to the actor yeah. basically. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a real uh, a real highlight of this film, just in every element of the design. I mean, the art direction, just the way that the, this movie this movie creates the Wizarding World, it makes it feel much more tangible than anything we've seen before. And I think it is because it's the first one, like we said, it's the first one to, fe to feature real clothes on its actors, to feature mm -hmm. environments outside of Hogwarts walls and, I guess, the Dursleys' home, and, and have yeah. the, those two worlds sort of bleeding together in, in a way, in, in a way that we haven't seen up to this point. And yeah. I think it's telling that, you know, to, to sort of transition from the night bus sequence in John Williams music, which is amazing, which got Oscar nominated and his last score for the, the franchise before I think Patrick Doyle did the next one. And then I forget who did some of the other ones. They switched around a little bit, but mm -hmm. um, that it was Oscar nominated for the music, which also has, uh, notably uses that double trouble song, which has lyrics from Macbeth. Uh, with the with let's which I guess we should talk about that briefly with the toads that sing and then then 
<laughs> and the, the song of that which was used heavily in the marketing. I remember the whole trailer was built yeah. around that song. Um, so any other further thoughts on the music? Oh my gosh. We were talking about like making the world feel real and, and the music is a huge part of that. Like, like obviously like I, I, I can imagine, you know, when Christopher Columbus sat down with John Williams and said like, what do I want for this movie? He was probably like, I want to, I want to score. I want, I want, I want themes and music and I want it to feel beautiful and scary. And I, you know, you know, I want it to feel orchestral and I want it to feel, like something out of your childhood, like, like very Amblin-esque, very classic Spielberg. So of course the score that John Williams delivers on those first two movies, which is some of the best music he's ever written. It's, it, it feels very of that era. It feels very Star Wars, Indiana Jones, a lot of, you know, a lot of big, big orchestral music. And, and, and then you get to prisoner of Azkaban, which, which John Williams also composed. And, there's jazz, <laughs> there's jazz. And then there's, you know, the, the, the double trouble song. And then there's like, there's all these like really, really weird musical elements to that movie, which you wouldn't expect to come from a composer like John Williams. But, but John Williams is, I think he's got a background in jazz. So like he's, he's very, very well versed musically. And, and it's, it's always really exciting to see him do a movie that, that, requires something other than big orchestral music. Cause right. it's always, it, it always just works so well. Like the, yeah, like the night bus theme is maybe not like the most I'm, I'm using air quotes. We can't see cause it's a podcast. It's maybe <laughs> not the most like memorable theme, but it is so perfect for that scene. And, and, and just elevates the mood of that scene so effortlessly. And, 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 and yeah, like, like when you come into Hogwarts for the first time and, and you hear the, this choir of students singing the lyrics from Macbeth, <laughs> you know, over like the harpsichord, it's like, it's, it's so weird. And yet, and yet it, it makes the world, it makes the world feel novel and fresh again in a way. And, oh man, he's such a genius. I think this might be my favorite Harry Potter score out of all of them. I think, I think I, it, it doesn't have all of like my favorite individual pieces of music, but but just as a as a score, you know, it's 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 incredible. It's it's masterful. I think it probably should have won the Oscar. But again, I think it I think it reflects, you know, a, a score can only be as good as the movie as the picture that it's set to. So it really I think I think the fact that this music is so good speaks to how how interesting and and fresh this movie is. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of foreboding in every in every note of uh, his score here. It's just, it's a different, it's a completely different tone uh, for the franchise, mm -hmm. not only because of the director, but we have a new Dumbledore, which we didn't even mention that yet. Um, we have, you know, a much darker uh, visual palette. We get the Dementors who are soul sucking demons basically. Um, so let's kind of talk about the train sequence, the Dementor design, and, and uh, I guess transition into kind of talking about Lupin and some of the grown up, the adult characters in this. I, I, when I read the book, when I read the book, uh, back, I think I read it in 2002, um, like the Dementors, the Dementors were creepy. I was like, like the way she describes it in the book is so vivid. Like you're like, oh, okay. So this like figure who looks li like he's just got like a hood on just comes and, and makes you feel all of the worst negative emotions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, that's like really scary. But it is nothing compared to what you see in this movie. Like I, like I remember watching. I think the Dementors showed up in the original trailer for this back when the movie came out, and and I remember watching that trailer and being like, 
nothing I dreamed up in my head as I was reading that book was that scary. Like, like nothing, like even, like even the scariest hooded figure I could imagine in my head didn't look that terrifying. (laughs) It's great in a way because it's, you know, obviously you can't, you can't detail what it feels like to have the happiness sucked out of you in a movie because you're just watching images on a screen. You don't get, you don't get the, the, the intimacy that you have when you're reading prose on a page. So it's like, okay, how do, how do you design a creature that is so evocative that, you know, instantly like, Oh yeah, that thing is going to suck all my happiness out. And, 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 and the Dementor designs are so brilliant because, (laughs) because you just look at that thing with that, with just this, this gauze kind of over its, its head and these like skeleton hands. Like it's just, it's so terrifying and, 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 and does what an entire page of prose does in the book in a, in a single frame of film. Well, and the way they really, converge, really incredible design, the way they converge yeah. later on Ooh. too, by the lake and sort of the get ready, getting ready for uh, the Dementor's kiss. And we get the, the, the visual design of, of, uh, you know, serious black soul kind of being this little like ball of light. That's, lift it out and then just drops back in right the last moment. Like all of that is, it's really kind of intense, which is again, part of the Mm. reason that I'm like, I don't know if my three year old is ready for these movies just yet. (laughs) Um, But to the movies, you know, to the movies, uh, Testament to the movies uh, credit that we get in the same movie where we get the Dementors, these like terrifying creatures, we get Buckbeak, uh, the hippogriff Mm, and this like sense of wonder that we get on that, the flight, that Harry has on Buckbeak's back and, and sort of the, the majesty of that creature, which harkens back to a little more of the tone of the first two movies, kind of, again, tra- making that transition. We get one reference to the, uh, the house points in this movie. We get a uh, very, very brief Quidditch in the rain. Last Quidditch, last real Quidditch sequence, I think, in, uh, in these films before they're just like, yeah, we don't have time for that shit. We can well, try with six, the sixth then... one has a lot of Quidditch because that's, that's when Ron starts playing. I so, guess it does. Yeah. But it became like, you know, it's almost like this movie's trying to pay homage to the last two because that became a thing in the last two movies. Like, oh, Ron and uh, um, Harry and Draco were going to like face off and then, oh, there's a Quidditch yeah. sequence and oh, somebody house points mm-hmm. are going to get taken away. And here they're yeah. like, yeah, but we're, we're going to acknowledge that, but then we're going to kind of do our own thing with it. Uh, yeah. And so I like the way that it, it has carries over elements of the last two movies, but then introduces the Dementors and Azkaban and, and, you know, yeah. kind of keys up Voldemort's return. I mean, um, yeah. Trelawney even says that this, on this night, you know, master and, and servant will be reunited talking, obviously, as we know now, Pettigrew and, and Voldemort. Uh, mm-hmm. so I think that's, let's talk a little bit about how, you know, about the buckbeak of it all and, and, and how that story plays into everything. Well, I like how I, I what I what I like about how Buckbeak functions in this movie is it, I, I think you touched on a really good point. Like the, it, you know, the the first two really settled into a rhythm of how how we were being immersed into the world, and Quidditch was is, is such an important element of that too. It's like it's like the it's wizard sports and this and that, and right. it's like the time where you get to see all the crazy you know the broom action and whatnot. But it's like by this point in the by this point in the story, you know, I mean Harry's thirteen. This is his third year at Hogwarts. You know, Quidditch is no longer Quidditch is no longer. Oh my gosh, we're we're you know we're playing lacrosse on brooms. It's just <laughs> like another. It's like it's just another thing. It's just another 
part of average everyday life um, in the same way that like kind of everything else is. So it's like what I, what I think is so essential about Buckbeak in this story is it's like, is it, 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 it makes, not only does it make the audience feel like they're back in the first two movies again, I think it makes Harry feel like he's back in his first two years again, because here's something, here's something else new. Here's, here's this new element to the magical world, which, which is so dangerous and beautiful and exciting in the way that like pretty much everything was in the first two movies. Cause, cause how, how, how magic is treated in prisoner of Azkaban is so different. You know, it's like when you cut into that Quidditch match, it's no longer like bright sunny day, you know, we're going to, I'm going to beat Malfoy and catch the snitch. It's like, it's raining, it's pouring, you know, like there's lightning everywhere. The Dementors show up. It's miserable. It's like, it's like, it's like this whole movie is just like t- the the most exciting things. It, it's like Harry experiencing the most exciting things from his last two years at Hogwarts, but having all of the joy and novelty sucked out of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good you know, point. Like Quidditch is miserable. I can't go to my friend. I can't go to Hogsmeade with my friends, this and that. So it's like, like Buckbeak is so special to the story because it's like the only thing that makes Harry feel true joy in a way. <laughs> right. Which is why that scene where he's flying over the lake with him is just like, Oh, oh, just it's so it's so beautiful. Yeah, and Buckbeak also services a a completely in, you know essential purpose later on as well with the whole time travel thing, which we're gonna get to shortly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's see, I wanted to say something, I totally forgot what it was. Now, <laughs> um, I was going to say, oh yeah, so not only that, it's Buckbeak, and you mentioned not being able to sneak around school. And how that is actually the introduction that we get for the Marauders map, which we were talking about briefly about how um, the film introduces Harry's parents, friends, so other people from that same class. And we never get the origin of the map itself, but in the movies as far, I mean, I think that it was intended to be mentioned in a, in the, perhaps the next movie and then the directors shifted over. And I think that kind of got lost. Do you think that that hurts the franchise as a, as a cohesive narrative overall? Or do you think that when Lupin taps the thing and says mischief managed at the end, it's a little bit of a, Hey, I know what's going on with this. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, cause I, I, I watched this with my roommate, um, uh, we we watched uh, all of the Harry Potter movies together, and and after we watched this movie, we brought that up and we talked about it. We were like, oh, it's it's a pretty key, it's pretty key that you know, Harry's dad and his friends created the Marauders map. That's like an important bit of information, yep. not even just for like the 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 franchise as a whole, but even just for this story. Like that's extremely important and. And the movie, you're right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't ever say that outright. There's never a moment where Lupin like sits down and says to Harry, like, you know, hey, you know, I'm Mooney. <laughs> Your this dad is, is wrong. Yeah. This is like this is who everybody is. We made this map. Um, I like that. I like. I. I. I really appreciate filmmaking that that forces the audience to lean in a little bit further mm-hmm. and engage with the film uh, on a more heady level you know like I think I think like if Chris Columbus were directing this like if this was done in the style of the first two movies you would have gotten a you would have gotten a scene where Lupin sat down and said like said that and said like you know this is the origin of the map this is where it came from but you know Coran being such a brilliant director gives you 
he gives you that information without ever expressing it directly. You know, it's like, you're sort of like, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, animals are this thing throughout the movie. Everybody can kind of turn into an animal. You see that Harry's dad's Patronus was the stag. Like, it's like, you're getting all of these elements to it. And, and I, I think the reveal being, Lupin knowing the spell being him saying mischief managed is so much more interesting and powerful than him just explaining it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, like it's, 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 I think that's the, that's what you get when you bring a good filmmaker in to do one of these movies is you don't, you don't get just straight exposition, but you get exposition revealed in clever, subtle ways. So I, I, it's, you know, it 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 might it might have gone over my head when I was a kid, but like going back and looking at it, I'm like, I think that's really strong filmmaking, and I really appreciated it. I love that the Marauders map is basically a vehicle as well to not only one of the most more suspenseful elements of the film, the whole uh, Harry down the hallways looking for Peter Pettigrew, yeah, who yeah. scurries right past him, I'm assuming in the hallway, um, mm-hmm. but we get you know you get the the backstory a little bit more on. Snape, Lupin, Black, Pettigrew, James Potter, and Lily, and, and everybody sort of how that dynamic was at school, that they were all friends. Mm-hmm. You know, Snape was kind of the outcast of the group. Everybody loved Lily, and Harry has Lily's eyes, apparently. Like, we learn a lot about <laughs> his parents through all of their, like, peers that that appear in this movie for the first time. And you get, like, you get really, um, you get a lot of, fun interactions with that too. When Lupin comes and saves Harry from Snape mm-hmm. in the hallway, when they have that big confrontation in the shrieking shack and, uh, old men who we haven't even talked about Gary Oldman yet. Um, and Gary, Gary Oldman gets his big scene about, you know, I did my waiting 12 years of it, which is now a meme, I think, uh, <laughs> which rightfully so. Cause that's a great line. Um, so let's, I think that's kind of a good way to sort of touch on those performances and that, dynamic. And then before we start wrapping up, we need to obviously talk about the time travel stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, again, it's like time is time is an important element of this movie in so many ways. And part of that is, is sort of Harry discovering the past and sort of coming to a greater understanding of where he comes from, you know, as like, like after this movie, his parents are no longer just these, these, these holy figures from his past, you know, they're, they were human beings who had friends and who had falling outs with friends. And, 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 you know, you sort of see echoes of who they were in Sirius and in Lupin and all these people. And it sort of all, all works to give Harry a better understanding of, of who he's going to be and who he's, you know, you know, is he going to be like his parents? Is he going to be more like Voldemort? Like it's, it's all, yeah, it it is all him gaining a better, it it is all him gaining a better understanding of his place in the world. Um, And I, and I think, you know, the casting is so, so, so key to, 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 to making all of that read. Like I, like Gary Oldman is, a phenomenal actor, obviously, but, uh, but, but he getting him to play serious, I think was a really good call because he, he has, he has that anger that I think, you know, Harry, you see in Harry throughout the whole movie too. Like, you know, when you first meet him, yeah, he's got that line where he's like, I did my waiting 12 years of it. You know, he's, he's got this, he's got this rage that I think Harry has a, kind of a kindred spirit too. Um, and, and him and Radcliffe just play off each other 
effortlessly, you know, like when, when they, when they finally get a chance to like sit down and talk like that scene where that, those scenes near the end where you get to like actually see Harry and Sirius talk with each other and form a dynamic is so, is so cool because, because the, the, the actors are so incredible and they, and they really sell this, this idea that these two, these two are kind of like made to be best friends because Harry is so much like his dad and James was Sirius's best friend. So it's, you know, it's, it's, I think Harry Potter is probably the best cast series, I would say. Yeah, I think <laughs> Best that's... cast overall series ever. Well, there's uh, not really, you know, a, there's not really a, a faulty note in, in the, I would say kind of in the franchise, honestly. Uh, yeah. But, but to that end, what do you, what are your thoughts on this being the first of Michael Gambon's Dumbledore and, and how different he is? I am wondering if I should say this. I like how gay he feels. I don't know. It's like, he's so like, I, I don't know if, I don't know if JK Rowling knew at that point that that character was going to be gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but watching, you know, watching him in this movie, it, 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 you know, he's got this sort of flam. He's so flamboyant and he's so, he's so out there and he's so witty, you know, in, in a way that I think, um, what was the actor who played Richard Denver Harris, in the first yeah. movie? Richard Harris, like, like what was great about Richard Harris in those movies is like, he, of course, like he walks in and you're just like, oh, that's like a why he's a very wise old wizard, you know, yeah. he sort of has this maintains this this element of control to him. And I think that's a part of Dumbledore, but I think Dumbledore is also like, he's at the same time, sort of this very, very f- funny, whimsical guy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whimsical guy, you know, and I, and, and, and ca- casting Michael Gammon is that is, is just so smart. And he, and he, and he plays it so well, even though it is different, you know, it is it, it, watching them, especially in order is it's very striking going from sort of, you know, very, old wise regal kind of presence yeah to 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 this guy who's like you know putting out candles with his hands and (laughs) you know doing like all this fun crazy shit so so i i think it's impeccable casting and and i think i i think i think it really suited i think it really suited the i don't again like i don't know how much Koran or the casting director knew about who, what Dumbledore was going to be doing in the future or the kind of character he was going to end up being, but it re but it, it worked so well. Like he's, he is honestly like when I think of Dumbledore, I think of him. Yeah. He's got a much more specific energy in general, I think than as yeah. you were saying with Richard Harris, who was just like, Oh, I'm the old wise guy who knows everything, but that's pretty much it. Like it's hard to imagine yeah, exactly. Richard Harris as Dumbledore having a life outside of, being there to give Harry advice as, as yeah. great as he is in those movies. But Michael Gambon, you're like, this guy's got shit going on. Like he's like, here, yeah. here, here. I know what you, you got the time Turner, go ahead and do that. And he seems to always know what's going on. Obviously in the time, time travel uh, sequence, he's like delaying <laughs> yeah. things because he's all knowing apparently, which I love that that's never explained how Dumbledore just happens to know everything about everything. Um, yeah. That he's just like, Hey, Hey, you guys go do this. I got some shit to take care of. <laughs> you you got this covered, Hermione. Three turns. I'll, I'll be in my office. Let me know how it goes. Um, or at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the sequence where they like come back to the hospital wing yeah. as he's coming out the door and they're like Dumbledore, we did it. And he's like, did what? Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Just, he's so uh, sassy. Great. It's great. great. <laughs> so, I feel like we've kind of leaned into the the big climax. So. Right in before we get to the time travel stuff, you have Lupin's transformation. Pettigrew becomes a little rat man and runs away, which again is sort of some of the disturbing imagery. Remind me think of like the witches 
if you've ever seen that movie from like mm, 1990, yeah, 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 there's some of that yeah. kind of rat boy imagery going on. Uh, I love the fact that Snape immediately kind of defends the the, bo- the children from Lupin, yeah. which mm-hmm. again is kind of key to his character because he's always after them, but then at the same time will sacrifice his life to defend them. And I think that hints at the big twist later on at the end of the series with uh, with Snape and uh, Lily and his her, mm-hmm. his feeling his comp- complex emotions towards Harry and his parents. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the time travel stuff. Yeah. I'm a sucker Again. for time travel in general. So yeah. not, you know, when this came out, I hadn't read the books at that point. And so I had no idea where we we're going to have to get time travel in here. So once it starts to go all like, not even back to the future, I guess it's more, it's, it's, the, it's the time travel logic where this had always happened. You just didn't know about it. And not like yeah. we're going to go back and change something. That was always Hermione seeing herself in the bushes, throwing the rock, yeah. howling to distract a Lupin. What are your thoughts on the the type of time travel that this movie uh, embraces? I think it's really brilliant because, you know, we all we all want to be we all want to be able to go back and fix our mistakes. Like we all want to be able to like go back and fix things that we did or do things differently. Um, but but in the context of the movie, no, they don't. Fix anything technically, mm-hmm. they literally just buy themselves more time, you know. And I, I, it's, it's this fascinating. It's just a fascinating way to look at time travel because so much of, so much of like when 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 people go back in time in movies, it is always like it's all about the change. It's always about like you know, oh, we have to, you know, we have to go back and you know fix this or stop Hitler from, or shoot Hitler or whatever, you know, or right. like, you know, or, or it's like back to the future where it's like, Oh, somebody messed up the timeline and we have to fix it now to repair the future. Um, whereas this movie's like, it's, it, they're trying not to change things. It's like, it's like, we can't, we can't mess with things. Literally all we're doing is just buying ourselves a little bit more time. And it's, it's just a really unique way to look at it. And I, and, and it makes that sequence feel so much more interesting. You know, it's like, like, yeah, like the, like you, you get all of these little clues when you play through that bit in the movie the first time, like when, when, when Hermione throws the stones into Hagrid's hut, you see, you see, like, you get like a close up of the stone and you're like, oh, that's a, that's interesting shape, you know, like, well, like, yeah, but you're like, you're not really registering this information as something you're supposed to be paying attention to right. until you play through the sequence again. And you're like, oh, oh, I see. It's they were here the whole time. Like, right, <laughs> like this exactly. is, this is how it always was. Um, it's just very fascinating. I think I, I, I love that sequence and it, and it, it structurally makes the movie so interesting because it's, it, it, you know, you, you play through the climax and then, and then you play through the climax did you play through the actual climax, but now <laughs> that it's the actual climax, it's, it's not the characters trying to, it's not the characters trying to like, you know, save the day or whatever. It's literally just them trying to, it's, it's them just going back in time and, and fixing, fixing everything that was actually going on during, during the past. It's just, it's super fascinating again too, like excellent music during the, the, during that whole sequence. I love the John Williams, like puts like a stopwatch in there or something like the all every time there's a musical cue, there's like, you hear this ticking in the background, like they're running out of time. Well, it's also the, the the time travel sequence starts by going out through a clock 
and then ends by going yeah. back through the Ooh, clock, that's which I thought was yeah. really cool. And I kind of forgot when when I watched this, you know, for this episode because it's been a while since I'd seen it, that you, it, the movie kind of progresses as if it's almost over, and then they're you know they they don't reach their intended objective. You know, her, Sirius Black is about to be be killed, and it's always like, oh wait, we we need to go back and try this third act of this movie one more time, um, and then it's kind of. It is almost feels like a redo, but you know it's sort of the sixth sense thing where when you go back, it 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 did it 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 all happened and like you never see Buckbeak's execution, for example, which I think is the the like yeah okay she threw the rock, but how are they going to get around Buckbeak getting killed? Oh, Buckbeak was already had already gotten off, uh, you know, gotten mm-hmm. away before that. Things like that. I think yeah, I'm just a sucker for time travel stuff in general. Uh, and I love the way that it, it plays into not only the theme, but also Harry's kind of journey of s- sort of self-empowerment, I guess, by the end of it. That, yeah. That he can uh, control him, his his destiny, his emotions, his overcome his past and kind of focus on what he does have in this movie. You know, yeah. by the end he has, he you know, there's a big conversation with uh, Lupin in the office where he's like, oh, none of it meant anything. He's like, what do you mean? It didn't mean anything. You know, you you know, all you saved a man from death. You, you know, you... you he's grown so much over the course of the story. And the fact that yeah. Lupin sort of lays that out, I really love the way that it's kind of, I don't know, it, it it feels like very cathartic in a way to see Harry sort of struggle and discover, oh, maybe maybe things aren't as dark and as, as desperate as I thought they were, having lived in the Dursley house for 13 years. Um, you know, there's a whole life out there for me once I get, once I get to the other side of this shitty thing called adolescence, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Can I tell you what my favorite musical moment in this whole movie is? Please. So, so the the there is a Patronus theme that John William John Williams wrote for for this movie that plays every single time a Patronus spell is cast. You hear it for the first hmm. time when Lupin casts it in the train, and it's just it's just angelic mm-hmm. choir. It's just like these, yeah. these this beautiful angelic choir, you know, and then. And then Harry starts to learn how to cast the Patronus. And every time Harry learns how to cast a, every time Harry casts a Patronus, like in the midsection of the movie, you get the angelic, you obviously like you get the angelic choir, but then you like, you, you hear like assorted instruments just in the background. Like you'll hear like a horn somewhere or like drums somewhere or like violins somewhere. And it's all just kind of like disconnected sounds. Um, and that's and that's sort of what a Patronus sounds like until you get to that final moment where he casts where he go in the time travel sequence, he he basically becomes the person he thought was his dad and casts the Patronus. And all of those sounds like congeal into this like this actual musical theme, which is just the most beautiful piece of music in a Harry Potter movie. And it's like, it's, I I didn't notice that the music was behaving that way when I watched it as a kid. But of course, now that I'm an adult and I notice, you know, I, I'm paying attention. I'm trying to pay attention to every, every cinematic element. It's so cool to watch that, that, that music be used to, to, to reflect Harry's journey towards finding that happiness within himself. It's like he, he could do a Patronus, like he can cast a Patronus, but it's like, it's not quite music yet. It's just an angelic choir and like assorted instruments in the background. But when he finally sort of realizes that, you know, 
he when he finally discovers that own power and that happiness within himself, you get the actual theme that the, the the actual musical theme that it's been building towards the whole movie. And it's just, it's such a, it's again, it's, it's, it's exquisite composing and it really, it, it, it really is such a beautiful climax to his journey because it is the whole movie is like we've talked about, about him being like, you know, this, this is a dark and scary world. And if I'm going to make it through this, I have to sort of find that, find that inner happiness and that inner strength within my, within myself. So, so yeah, that's probably in my rewatch. That was, that was, that was probably my favorite moment. That's a cool progression. I need to go back and listen to the score and kind of note, note that for myself. Cause when you said Lupin's casting it, I, I immediately, my mind went to the, oh, kind of yeah, punctuated yeah. by Lily's scream and that whole thing. But I, I need to go and listen to how that, how that kind of builds on itself. Um, so I think before we start wrapping up, we have to talk about the final shot. You had yes. thoughts on this. <laughs> yes. Let's get yes. to it. Well, I want to hear your thoughts first. I don't know. I just feel like it's very, it's a very abrupt ending. I don't, I don't, it feels like too, I don't know. It feels too cute in a way for me. Like, I feel like the movie has this balance of tones be, between, you know, sort of the wonder of the last two and sort of the darkness that's to come. And I feel like that that just felt like the weird, a weird, like wrong note to end this very thematically rich Harry Potter coming of age story on just him kind of it's it's the freeze frame, I think, that throws it off. If he had like flown into the sky and it's like a you know wide shot of him taking off or something, then I might have been like, OK, cool. Even if it sort of like did that, the I don't know, maybe you know what that effect is called when they zoom in on one little part of the screen and it kind of closes in on it, which he does. They do a couple times this movie. Yeah. If it had done that, uh, then maybe I would be like, OK, cool on him, like taking off. It's just it's the the freeze frame thing. Almost, it feels kind of TV-ish in a way. Like, oh, the next episode, freeze frame, run credits, over it. I don't know. It just, it, it felt like a, a off note to, to conclude what is on a, obviously one of the better Harry Potter films, if not the best. I have to, now I'm doing the rewatch, obviously, for the podcast, so I'll have to do that ranking it for myself at the end. But it just, I don't know, it felt like it's a little bit of a downer moment. Uh, not necessarily the scene that precedes it, because it is... You know, they changed that from the end of the book. I think he gets the firebolt like in the in the middle of the book or something. And they change it to the end of the movie here, which makes sense because it sort of indicates kind of the the hope that he's now found within himself and his new like connection with Sirius and his godfather and all that stuff. And and so I, li- I like that element of that scene. It's just that last shot that I'm like, really, this is what we're doing. What, what are your thoughts? I feel like you're about to defend it now. I well, I I was like you, I think, up until this most recent rewatch. Okay. Like I I have I have always like basically every other Harry Potter movie <laughs> ends with a wide shot. You know, it ends with a a a big crane shot showing the castle or this or that. You know, like like the second one ends with like Hagrid Hagrid coming back into the Great Hall and everybody like cheering and hugging him. And then you like and then you like do this helicopter shot out of Hogwarts and everything. And it's like yeah, like this movie ends with this this freeze frame on Daniel Radcliffe's face. I pulled it up on my computer because I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to look at it again because I I actually noticed something about it that I didn't notice before and I want I want to talk about it and and along with everything else but it's it is such a striking point and the movie on mm-hmm. it, both in the context of the movie and compared to 
the other Harry Potter movies, which which I think really, really draws attention to how to 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 what it means in the context of the story. So when I when I when I watched it this time, knowing that it was getting to that last shot, I was I was like paying attention to the movie and I was like thinking about, you know, what was happening in the movie and what would sort of indicate what would give meaning to that last shot. And, and I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but there's that, that scene where Harry is practicing with Lupin and he says, and, and Lupin was like, what did you use as your memory for the Patronus? You know, what was your happy memory that you used for the Patronus? And Harry says like riding a broom for the first time, but that doesn't work. You know, it's like his, it's like, you know, that was his happiest, that was his happiest memory. But like now Harry's in a place where it's like, you know, happiness is this much more complicated thing. And it's not just tied to, it's not just tied to like, oh, flying, you know, oh, doing magical stuff. That's really cool. And I, I think what, 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 what that final shot indicates to me is it is just like, it is like the, it is like the punctuation mark that says like Harry has finally found happiness again. Like he has finally found a way to like, to, 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 to feel like he's finally found like joy in the things that bring him joy. Um, and, and I think the, the, what, 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 what you get with the freeze for what you get with this freeze frame that you wouldn't, you wouldn't get if it were just like a regular shot is, is how this is going to be a weird observation, but when, whenever the Dementors are sucking the life out of Harry, you see sort of like his face distorted mm-hmm. towards them. Right. Like, like, like this, like the soul is sort of like coming out of him, you know, like, like, they're they're sucking they're sucking the the happiness out of him but it literally looks like they're like sucking himself out of him and what what's so fascinating about this freeze frame is that same kind of effect is being used on his face but it instead of his face sort of getting pulled outward it's getting pulled inward hmm. so it's like does that make any sense yeah yeah it's kind of I, I it's hard to like the connection dis- between those two effects in there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of hard to describe it, but I, especially because I'm it's like a blur effect kind of. It's like instead of blurring, instead of the image sort of blurring outwards, it's blurring inwards towards him. Right. So if you're to take that in context with the visual language of the rest of the movie, the the meaning derived from here is that now Harry is sort of he's taking back his own happiness and he is sort of, you know, he's sort of reclaiming his soul in a way that is like, like the opposite is happening when the dementors are sucking the life out of you. And it's like, it is, it, it, it's so triumphant. Like, like I, I love this. I love this final shot because it just feels like the entire, like his entire journey over the course of the movie, just coming together in kind of a perfect merging of, story and visual language it is definitely off-putting like it is like i will concede that it is like definitely like a striking shot and like i think i speak for everybody when when i say that like when we all saw this for the first time we were like wait a minute whoa that's the final shot of the movie but it's like like we said i think this this is a movie that's all about theme and meaning and and you know i think what makes it the best directed harry potter movie is how it uses how it uses the, the image to sort of reflect back on meaning. And, and in that sense, I think it is kind of the perfect final shot because it's a movie that is all about, like I said, it's all about, you know, 
sadness and happiness at the end, how we sort of find that within ourselves. So it's, so, so the fact that he gets, he gets a broom from Sirius, who is like his family now, and he's able, and he is like now discovered that he has this, he has this power and this, you know, this joy within him. It's like, uh, it's just, it's, it's great. I, 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 I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, but, no, I think you, I think but, you are. In I, fact, I'm, you know, you're talking about him sort of reclaiming his life, that kind of thing. And, and I'm thinking of the sort of metaphor of it kind of being the light, like almost like he's, he's, he was struggling in the very beginning, Lumos, Maxima. Yeah. To find exactly. light, to yeah. find like, oh, something, hope, something to cling on to. And he's like, light, light, light. Damn, I can't get the light to stay on. And then, yeah. you know, literally at the end, he gets a broom it's called the firebolt which creates light. Yeah. If you want to really get deep into it, fire creates light. And then at the end of the movie, it's like this, like, you know, uh, joyful moment, sort of the, um, the, he doesn't, only time he makes an expression like that in the film, other than the last shot is on Buckbeak's back. Yeah. So I think that exactly. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, to, to be fair, it's not, it was never the kind of thing that like, Oh, this ruined the movie for me. Fuck you. Sure, sure, sure. It was just yeah. like, hmm, okay. I mean, I guess like, that's the last shot, but because especially when you come from the last two where it's big or, you know, John Williams score and like panning yeah. out of the great hall, and everybody's crying and stuff, you know, which are <laughs> way more Chris Columbus-y obvious ways to end a, a kid's movie. Uh, and I, I think that this, yeah, it it's in, it's it's definitely a bold choice on, on Quran's yeah. part. And I think the more we're talking about it, the more I'm like, okay, I see where he's going for. I don't know if I a hundred percent agree with that being sure. the last shot, but I, I, I like the intentionality uh, in it, I, I, I can appreciate, especially in the context of, like I just said, the beginning and kind of the, the book ending of the movie of him where he is emotionally at the start and at the end that there's, there is yeah. something, he has something in his life to look forward to, to be happy to some connection other than, you know, his, yeah. his friends at school, like you said, a family that's not locking him under the stairs <laughs> for over exactly. a decade. And it's so. like, he's got it too. It's like, he's got a connection now that isn't just it isn't just, oh, wow, I'm a wizard. Being a wizard is cool. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, you know, again, like, like, like we've said, the, the, this movie is so much more intimate and personal. And it's so much more about like the things that we actually need as human beings to, to, to be happy and, and grow and develop, uh, you know, whether we're wizards or not. So it's like, I love that, you know, I love that this director chose to end the movie on a moment that, that just really speaks to that and, and, and really thematically reflects that in a way that, you know, again, not no offense to any of the other directors of this franchise, but I, I feel like none of the other directors were particularly interested in, you know, it's like you end the movie where the movie ends, you know, you end the movie where the story ends and you do, you land it in a way that is pretty and aesthetically pleasing and, you know, makes people cry. Whereas Quran is like, you know, he's the kind of director who's like every image has to mean something and every mm -hmm. image has to tell the story in a in a in a deep and complex way. And so, of course, the final frame of the movie is it, it's, it's not going to be what you expect, but it's going to be something that I think upon really close inspection feels like, I, in my opinion, kind of like the perfect end, <laughs> perfect end to the movie. So, yeah. I think that's also the perfect end to the podcast. I feel like we've yeah. <laughs> we've ended on on the final the shot. The final of the movie. shot. The Crooked Table Podcast will return right after these messages. 
Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. So, uh, Jackson Smith, if there's nothing else to, to delve into, I mean, obviously we could talk about this movie much longer than we are, but in the interest of not going over the, I think, what, two hours we were for Revenge of the Sith, um, if there's yeah. nothing else we want to mention. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? My my official Twitter is Jackson C Smith ninety five, um, and so you can find me there. I like to post memes and opinions on there. Um, or you could follow us uh, on our screen uh, Screen Fever Twitter, uh, which is at like I said Adam and I's YouTube channel, uh, and the handle for that is Real Screen Fever. Um, and there we have a link to our YouTube channel, which is called Screen Fever. You can just type that into YouTube. And again, we've got podcasts video essays, tons, short films, tons of cool stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jackson, for coming back from the Star Wars series to the Harry Potter series. <laughs> and next time we'll get you on here about something that's not part of a bigger franchise and just kind of a one-off, one of your favorite movies. Just So figure out what you want to talk about next time because we'll definitely oh, yeah. bring you back I soon. Thank you so much. Thank oh, wait. Actually, I think we were supposed to do the Matrix sequels at some point. Ah, so yes, we have to that. do that as well. So yes. it will be part of a franchise. I lied. <laughs> so that maybe that'll be your next time. We'll figure out when we'll do that sometime, uh, sometime yeah. soon. But thanks so yeah. much for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs>